Himalayas Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, with the Academy Awards just two weeks away, another chance to hear conversations I've had with some leading Oscar nominees. Today, we have the writer-director of Tar, Todd Field, and its star, Kate Blanchett. The film has six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress. Whenever he said, Kate, here's the thing, he, I knew, what's he going to throw at me now? But, you know, he loves the, he loved that. Well, it was, it was really fun to see. It was like playing Stump the Jock with her. He's like, what could I give her that she couldn't handle? And, and it was it became, like, very challenging. And also, Laura Poitras, nominated for her documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. The film traces photographer Nan Golden's quest to expose the Sackler family's role in the opioid crisis as the Sacklers tried to artwash their name through huge gifts to museums, which in turn named galleries after the Sacklers. Through their pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers pushed the highly addictive painkiller OxyContin as if they were drug dealers employed by a cartel. In All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, director Laura Poitras explores Golden's life and career and her activist work through an organization called PAIN. It stands for Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, which staged public protests in museum galleries named after the Sacklers. When I talked with Poitras about her film, we started off with its opening scene. So this being radio, we can't see what is happening. Will you describe uh, who the speaker is? It's Nan Golden, what she's doing in this moment and why this is the starting point for your movie. Right. So this is the beginning of the film. Um, Nan is organizing an action at the Metropolitan Museum at the the Sackler Wing, the former Sackler Wing, um, protesting the Sackler name being on the the walls of the, the, the Met Museum. And she and her organization called Pain. It's prescription addiction intervention now. Um, they launch a, a direct action where they've taken, um, they have these pill bottles and they put these sort of fake um, Oxycontin prescription labels on them that talks about the death toll and the role of the Sacklers and throw it into this sort of body of water that sits within the, the Sacklers. It's like a reflecting pool. Reflecting pool. Thank you. Um, and uh, and this is the first action of 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 pain um, that that they did. Is the first direct action. It was front page news. And then the the film kind of you know rewinds from there, and we learn about Nan's creating of this organization to shame the Sacklers. If people are unfamiliar with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, I'm going to read the opening statement that Carolyn Maloney, a uh, representative from New York, made in December of 2020 at uh, the Committee on Oversight and Reform for the House of Representatives, because I think it summarizes what they did very accurately. says, and I'm quoting her directly now, at the behest of the Sackler family, Purdue targeted high-volume prescribers to boost sales of OxyContin, ignored and worked around safeguards intended to reduce prescription opioid misuse, and promoted false narratives about their products to steer patients away from safer alternatives and deflect blame toward people struggling with addiction. And most despicably, Purdue and the Sacklers worked to deflect the blame for all that suffering away from themselves and on the very people struggling with the OxyContin addiction. So that's what Purdue 
and the Sacklers did or are accused of doing. How does art figure into the other part of the Sackler story? Right. Um, you know, it's a long story. It goes back. Um, it's sort of uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, a renowned journalist who uh, has written the book Empire of Pain and is interviewed in the film. He sort of he, he sort of charged the history of the Sackler family. And it goes back before OxyContin. Arthur Sackler um, develops this kind of, you know, playbook for marketing prescription drugs to doctors. Um, and he does this with the with Valium. And then he also creates this database system where you can see who is overprescribing, um, and then you you know sort of double down on marketing to them because you can make more money and this sort of whole kickback scheme. And then you know fast forward to OxyContin, they um, pressure the FDA to put this label on it that downplays the addictive properties of OxyContin, and then they start aggressively aggressively marketing this drug and downplaying its addictive properties so that it's being prescribed, not for people who are post-surgery or who are dealing with terminal illness, right? Where, you know, you need these drugs. I mean, these drugs are important, right? For people who are really suffering, but for like minor ailments. And in terms of your question about the art world, you know, the Sacklers are very um, cleverly, you know, are making their money through the sale of these drugs, but disassociate, you know, keep their name sort of out of the press or like you don't, you know, it's like Purdue Pharma is kind of the you know, the company, but you don't, they, they keep a very low profile in the sort of how they make their money. And then there's a sort of art washing of the blood money into cultural spaces, museums, and also universities and medical schools. So you have the Sackler wing at multiple museums, you have research centers at universities um, with well, hiding the kind of where the money comes from. I want to play another clip. This is Nan Golden talking about her organization, Paint. I've started a group paying to hold them accountable. To get their ear, we will target their philanthropy. They have washed their blood money through the halls of museums and universities. And she's kind of borrowing a page from the ACT UP playbook in terms of civic disruption, I guess you could call it, acts of protest. So what happens and what is the first museum that pays attention to what Nan is saying and says maybe she has a point? Yeah. Um, so what you just read is she does this manifesto. She publishes it in art form, which is rare. I mean, I think we, it's important to note that not that many artists with like, you know, substantial power in museum spaces are like going in and disrupting them. You know, it's like we, we could use a little bit more of it in, in the world we live in. Um, you know, but the response to the museum, to the, the Met doesn't respond. None of the museums respond after they first do actions. And, you know, it's not until over a year into the existence of pain and they, they keep going into these museums and um, causing these disruptions. And, you know, the first museum is the National Portrait Gallery in London. They were going to do a retrospective of Nan's work and Nan publicly, I think she says it publicly, like, I won't do my retrospective if they take a $1.3 million grant from the Sacklers. And, you know, to their great credit, the National Portrait Gallery publicly says we're not taking the money. And it's like, you know, headline news, like National Portrait Gallery rejects this money from the Sacklers. And then, you know, it's interesting, like, I'm always interested, you know, what is it? what does it take? You know, what is it like, what are the tipping point moments, right? That where everybody who's kind of like aligned, who's like trying to pretend something is not happening. And then they, you know, they, they shift their perspectives and that was the tipping point. And then after the national portrait gallery, the Tate announces they won't take money, the Met, et cetera, et cetera. 
But it's not the end of the story in, in the film because, you know, right after that, I mean, first of all, Payne is like, okay, great. You're not taking the money. Let's take down the name. But then of course they're like, no, we can't take that. You know, we've have a contract. We can't do that. So, but not only that, but like right after that, Nan and Megan Kapler, who you meet in the film as part of Payne, you know, start to, to notice that they're being followed, you know, and that there's um, guys, you know, there's, there's very obvious surveillance, you know, which when, when you're dealing with very obvious surveillance, there's one reason for it. It's intimidation. Right. I mentioned earlier how Carolyn Maloney, uh, the congresswoman from New York, talked about how the Sacklers blamed the addicts themselves. And you seem to make a very specific choice not to talk about how people in this organization got addicted. Tell us about that decision because it is clearly a choice that you make. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Like there was like, we had no interest in this being a film that, you know, is about sort of, you know, like we wanted this to shift the shame, that the shame belongs on the Sacklers and the family and the boardrooms and the people who are, you know, who've allowed this, you know, dangerous drug to be misprescribed, you know, that, that, that the shame belongs on the government. And quite frankly, it also, you know, our representatives have failed. You know, I mean, Maloney's comments were, what, in 2019? I mean, that's uh, late. Game. 20, 2020. 2020. I mean, this was a drug that was known to be, you know, abused from the early 2000s. I, I just, where was the Justice Department? Where are elected officials? Why were the Sacklers allowed to, you know, um, influence how, you know, the FDA um, labeled their drug? And so, you know, it's a, it's a story really about, you know, um, society and um, U.S. society in particular. And, um, and how, you know, as Nan says, you know, the you know, the billionaires get to decide, you know, the rules of the game, you know, in the justice system. And they get away with it. Ultimately, they get away with it. Nobody, nobody's being charged with a crime, you know, even though the company itself has been found guilty of crimes. That was Laura Poitras, director of the documentary, All the Beauty in the Bloodshed. It will start streaming on HBO Max in March. Coming up, writer-director Todd Field and actress Kate Blanchett on their film, Tar. What does it take to be the very best? Is it purely talent? Does it also require dedication and ambition or, as an extreme, a kill or be killed mindset? And what happens to the people who get in the way? All of those questions percolate in Tar. Written and directed by Todd Field, the movie stars Kate Blanchett as Lydia Tar, a headstrong classical music composer and conductor at a prominent European symphony. I spoke with Todd Field and Kate Blanchett soon after Tar premiered. The film has since been nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. Conducting is such a um, mysterious art form because the audience sees the conductors back and they're, because they're ahead, they're always a breath ahead of the music. They look strangely sort of... Um, out of sync. Out, out of sync. Yeah. And so people think, what do they do? Do they beat time? But they, they, it's a, the, you use everything in your arsenal to communicate what you hear inside your head. And it should be obvious. But what I found fascinating in preparing for the film in those conducting sections was that you rehearse 
trust should prepare in silence. So I listen to everybody's and their dog's version of the Mahler Fifth and all of Mahler's other symphonies. But in the end, you have to find your own way, your own rhythm, your own interpretation. And, you know, whether it's a facial posture, you look at um, recordings of um, Bernstein uh, visual recordings. And sometimes when he gets to the adagetto, in performance, he doesn't move. He is just there, and his presence is, is enough to elicit that sound from the audience. Todd, as a storyteller, what does classical music, and specifically a character who's a conductor, give you that another character who could be you know, a baker, an executive, a lawyer, doesn't? Well, I mean, this film is an examination of power and power structures and sort of um, the sort of two-way streets that people travel on and trade in power. So... To have this character sitting at the top of a of a very clear visual pyramid, literally, you know, standing at the fulcrum mm. in front of a hundred people, is fairly cinematic. You know, beyond that, um, classical music. You know, is anyone that's read the news uh, the last few years? You know, has been sort of embroiled in some sea change for good reason, and, and it's a very, it's a, it's a sort of glacial rate of change. Let's put it that way. Especially, are you talking about Europe. about me too, and about people who have lost uh, their jobs or more? Than yeah, that? abuse of people that yeah. have, have have behaved badly and abused power, and these things have been going on forever. You know, from the very beginning, from the first time anyone ever stood on a podium and and, and had that kind of power. So, yeah, I mean, she, this character could have been CEO of a major organization. She could have been sitting in all kinds of power structures. But this is sort of a very simple audio-visual way to sort of dramatize that. But also I think something something very powerful and magnificent is moving through her. I mean, you look at great artists, it is. And she's trying to achieve this thing of through... in. Years and years of, of, of profound discipline and deep, deep rigor uh, to push herself and therefore the orchestras that she stood in front of outside their comfort zone. And I know myself, um, any time that I've ever approached anything that has shifted me into a new gear as, as, a, as an actor, it has been deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And there has been, you know, a lot of raised voices and arguments, respectful often, some not so respectful. But sometimes, you know, it's, it's a, the film doesn't answer that question, but it is, does ask what is permissible when you're searching for trying to make something truly great. I want to hear more about what you're talking about in the past, about how those experiences might have influenced your performance here. Definitely. I mean, definitely. And I, I mean, I've been in many, many rehearsal rooms where, where there have been tears, where there have been, you know, walkouts, you know, where there had to be reconciliations. And I've also, in my career, been involved in the intervention of the HR department, which is now, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are, you know, a lot of abuses of power that I have witnessed and experienced myself. And it's, it's a very difficult thing because you... You know, when we we understand discipline in um, classical music when you're approaching these magnificent deep works, which you know you have to, you literally have, your fingernails have to be bleeding before you have the right to be able to play those pieces on the piano or on the cello or the violin. And we understand how much people have to push themselves in a physical sense if they're an elite athlete. But when it comes to other art forms, it's, it's a little bit more nebulous. But you're all, you're, well, especially, ahead, especially this, um, and, and, and I think your point is well taken, which is, you know, aside from her sitting on top some other power structure, the, this is also about the creative process, obviously, right? So um, in a creative process, 
that involves massive amounts of other people, front house and back house. So there's an opportunity there to to see how how that functions and how mm. that works and who benefits from it. Who benefits? Yeah, exactly. There's also something about virtuosity and the ways in which people who are identified as virtuosos and they could be conducting an orchestra, they could be running uh, S and P 500 company are given leeway because they're good at their jobs and their behavior is excused because they're unique in their talent. But often they've forgotten how they've got there. True. You know, and so I think, I mean, I, I'm a big believer if, if you, you know, I think the, the truly great artists that I look at, and this is certainly the case in the classical music world, is of the sense that you therefore must mentor those beneath you. You have a duty of care to bring up artists under, un, underneath you because you, it, it, it keeps you connected to, to the initial struggles and insecurities and problems that you experienced as a younger artist. But there's so many people who find that behavior threatening. They don't want to create their own rivals. They don't want to create people who might somehow eclipse them. But and not so, Todd and I. No, no, no. no, no, no not not us. us. <laughs> We're the good ones. <laughs> I would say Lydia's. I would say Lydia's mentorship of others comes up short. Is that fair? Well, what I love about Todd's screenplay is it never allows an audience to sit in easy judgment because in a lesser writer's hands, we would have been told exactly what has gone on in the past. We would have been told exactly what these um, relationships entailed and all of those details where it's a little bit of a Rorschach test because an audience says, but she said this. And well, I don't know, did she say that or did she do this? That's sort of, it's there's a lot of hearsay and gossip, which when you work with an orchestra, an intended orchestra, my God. God, it's like being back at the boarding school. Well, this is something, Todd, that seems very intentional on your part. And I don't know if you wrote these scenes and realized they didn't fit. I'm going to talk about one scene in particular. There's a deposition. We don't see a minute of it, but we know exactly what happened in it. We see its consequences. Mm -hmm. A lot of filmmakers would show that deposition. You choose not to. Well, there's a, you know you see the, you see the deposition. What you don't see is a meeting with the board later. Um, you see them look up at her, and and that's it. And um, yeah, I just kind of have allergies to procedurals unless I'm watching Law and Order, you know. And and which and is a great show. It's a great show. It's a, it, yeah. But you're also <laughs> letting the audience, like like Kate was saying, you're letting the audience put together the pieces. This did not go well. This board meeting did not go well. We don't need to see it, but we know the result. Yeah, and and if there's any confusion about that, I I think that that confusion would probably you know, be cleared up several scenes later. Definitely. Coming up, more of my conversation with Kate Blanchett and writer-director Todd Field about Tar. Ang Lee, many years ago, told me about how he chooses movies. And he was going, I don't know if it's from Brokeback, but he was doing Life of Pi. Anyway, he'd done historical movies. He'd done suburban dramas, like the ice storm. Anyway, he said, I'm not interested in anything unless it scares me. Yeah. And we live in a world and a business where the familiar is much more attractive. It's what studios want to do. And often it's what actors want to do because it's safe. Is there a part of you, and specifically in this movie, that touches on that idea of being attracted to something that, that is scary to you? Todd, I'll start with you. Um, well, I, th I think there's something uh, for this character, Lydia Tarr, that's attracted to things that are dangerous. That's kind of what, she, ultimately, that that is sort of um, 
where she winds up where she is. She she wants to feel alive again. She's at a place where she's sort of cresting this mountain and she looks beyond and, and there's maybe another mountain, but she's turning 50 and, and maybe she won't make it to that other peak. You know, so but what about you as a filmmaker? You're talking about the character. I'm talking to you about as a filmmaker. I'm going to push well, you want back to get a really, bit. You're going to get really confessional here, John. Yeah. Um, um, as a filmmaker, asking a different question. As, as a filmmaker, um, yeah, I, I, you know, um, I mean, there's all sorts of danger, but in terms of something like this, I mean, what compelled me to write it in the first place were I was really struggling with um, with a lot of questions and looking for language to to help either have some kind of continuity with other people about those questions or or even have some kind of dialogue even if it was a debate and i found that i was having a hard time finding that it felt like it was a really scary thing for for the world or at least for america you know um so in terms of this project for sure i yeah i mean i when i turned the script and i said to the studio you don't want to make this and they said, no, 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 we want to make it. I said, no, you understand this is this is potentially really dangerous stuff. And they said, yeah, but we want to make it. And I said, okay, because... Were you they, relieved that they said yes or a little bit terrified <laughs> that they said yes? No, I, I was really terrified. Yeah, no, I'm... Be, uh, you know, yeah, no, for sure. I it. Um, you know, it was such a it was such an odd period because it started at the beginning of the lockdown, the first lockdown. Right. Um and, and I think there's been this year we've seen a lot of really interesting, um, different kinds of work from from filmmakers, you know, and dangerous work in different ways from people. And I think a lot of that came out out of the lockdown where everybody kind of thought like, okay, the world's ending. What the hell? Let's go, you know. Um, so so yeah, in in this case for sure, yeah, it felt like there was a um, a level of um, of risk for it. Yeah. And as the conductor, Kate, you get the last word. Ah, I get the last word about terror and excitement. After years and years and years of working in the theatre, I've somehow, for better or for worse, managed to um, confuse excitement and terror and tell myself that, you know, it's the same energetic place, isn't it? That, and rather than being frightened, I'm excited. And I've never felt more alive doing this. It seemed to be bringing up, and in ways that surprised me every single day, things that I didn't even know I'd been thinking about. Because we haven't processed. I mean, we've come out of the pandemic. We know we might be going back into a pandemic, and my God, there's more to come, given what we're doing to the planet. But we, you know, we we haven't even processed Black Lives Matter or Me Too, and they've already become pejorative terms. And we, we, we really need to keep examining these things in nuanced, collective Ways and so I found that the in a very human way, all those things were brought up. But then, of course, there was the you know the physical demands that that Todd, you know, whenever he said, "Kate, here's the thing," he I knew what's he going to throw at me now. But you know, he loves the, he loved that. You'd be an excellent tennis player. Well, it was it was really fun to see. It was like playing stump the jock with her. You know, um, it was like what could I give her that she couldn't handle? And and it was it became like very challenging. The truth was is that there was really nothing that I could throw at her that souffle. she wouldn't take. I can't cannot cook a souffle. To say <laughs> I cannot make a souffle. Kate and Todd, thank you so much for your time. Thank, you. thank you, John. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. That was Oscar nominees Kate Blanchett and Todd Field talking about their film Tar. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. We'll see you again next week.
Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. 